certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Week nine of the Claremont serial killings trial began with a surprise visitor to the courtroom. Welcome to day 37 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo in the studio with Damien Cripps and calling in from Supreme Court, Tim Clark. And we'd also like to welcome today special guest, Shane Brennan, who's a very well-known name in Perth. Uh, Shane, you're a criminal defence lawyer with a vast experience in murder trials. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the kinds of cases you've covered? Yes, well... I've been a criminal lawyer and a defence lawyer for about 42 years or more. Um, I've done just about every case you could think of. Um, not a lot of murders, but probably a few dozen over the over the run. But um, I generally, my main work is in drug drug cases, fraud, and things like that. But um, yeah. I, I recently completed a long murder case that um, last year, which was um, very DNA um, mm. driven. So yes. Well, we keep saying in this podcast that this trial is really unlike anything we've ever mm. seen before. Would you agree with that? Not particularly. <laughs> um, how it, so? Well, how so? Because. It's interesting because the alleged perpetrator has not been discovered until recent times. That's what makes it unique. But having said that, um, many cases, murder cases, drug cases, all sorts of cases are often DNA-driven. And this case is clearly the key to this case is DNA because if the state can't get over the line to the required standard, in relation to, as I understand it, um, particularly a sample from the left thumb of Ms Glennon, then I think the state case fails. Tim, he's hit the nail on the head there, right? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I mean, we've been hearing about this DNA for, well, for years in, in broad terms and then for the last couple of weeks in very, very uh, detailed terms. And, uh, and once again, that, that, uh, that particular fingernail that Shane mentioned there, uh, AJM40, um, is the centre of the case and it was the centre of most of the questioning uh, today of, of, of Miss Ashley, who, who we know is, is one of the most senior pathway scientists and um, was also um, very central to the actual work that was done on some of these fingernails, uh, not that one in particular. Um, which, as I said, was was the uh, was the fulcrum of all the most of the questioning today. Shane, how difficult is a case like this to run? A trial that is is so complex um, in terms of the DNA evidence. Well, it's extremely taxing, and um, Mr. Jovic, who's lead counsel, I know, is ably assisted by other counsel and a fair team of people. But effectively, he has to get across the minutiae to cross-examine in particular and no doubt I don't know what the defence case is but probably lead their own expert or experts in the context of DNA but to answer your question um, 
DNA has evolved in terms of the science and the forensic um, nature of it immeasurably in the last 20 years. You know, to me it seems like yesterday, but it was about 20 years ago things started warming up, and in particular, as um, Tim referred to in his recent um, discourse on all of this, this whole new um, profiling system. Tim could probably remind me. That's the, the low copy number. Yeah, the profiler plus Tim, which yeah, yeah, and that's when and you've probably been seeing diagrams on the screen in court where they show the DNA strands and the different loci and so forth is that right <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, yeah we definitely have seen and uh, uh, well i mean you're a, a lot more experienced than probably everyone in this room and me about this stuff but we're trying to as as sort of journalists trying to explain it in in layman's terms it's certainly uh, taxing all our brain power and uh, and uh, as mr jovic was 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 central to it all today with his cross-examination. Um, obviously, he's got to be more across it than, than, than pretty much everyone. You're, you're right. And uh, to cross-examine cogently, one needs to understand the science because otherwise you are shooting in the dark, if I can put it in those terms. But this is quite difficult when there's a trial before a jury because counsel on both sides and the trial judge have to distill this quite difficult science down to lay terms. Fortunately, in this trial, there's a very astute trial judge, and so um, it, it doesn't have to be laboured as much as it might well be normally to get it down to quite simple terms, if that makes sense. But at the end of the day, it comes down to where you get to the point where you can say, or persuade a jury, or in this case, a judge sitting alone, that the match is sufficient to the required standard. Of course, the key to this case, I don't know because I, I don't know what the defence strategy is, but if I, from what I read, the defence strategy is we're not arguing about whether it's a match, but where the sample actually came from and whether it was in some way contaminated by samples held. And Tim, uh, Justice Hall started today by actually asking the prosecution uh, or, or seeking clarity on on this matter, didn't he? Yeah, that's exactly right, Matt. So um, uh, Justice Hall, as, as Shane said, is, is, is a hugely experienced um, uh, trial judge. Um, he's done very significant, long and important murder trials before, and he's obviously very much across all this all this DNA stuff having having sat through other trials on it but it was noticeable this morning first thing that obviously having had a ponder over the weekend probably um, uh, perused the uh, the transcripts the trial transcripts that, that come in every night he, he, he went back to the to the heart of it and um, and questioned Miss Barbara Gallo or, or tried to clarify with Miss Barbara Gallo exactly what she says happened when this key or these two key fi fingernail samples went to the UK and were tested um, over there. Because as we discussed at the end of last week, um, the AJM 40, which is the thumbnail, and 42, which is uh, two, two fingers over on Kira's left hand, those two samples were combined and then run, the tests were run, and this positive sample, um, or this positive um, hit for Mr. Edwards' DNA came up in 2008. 
But when the, the AJM42 sample was first run back in 97, there was, there was only Kira's DNA found on that. So Justice Hall asked Ms. Barbagallo, what, what's, your, what's your postulation going to be? What's your case going to be um, about AJM42? Are you going to say that there was no DNA on it at all? Are you going to say that the, the techniques used in 97 weren't able to um, discover it or something else? And, and Ms. Barbagallo basically said, well, we, we, we're not, we can't say definitively what happened um, to AJM42. Um, but what we are going to say is that there was there was nothing found on those tests in '97, and there was in 2008. And there are various options that we could go to um, when the time comes um, to uh, to argue that. So, Shane, what do you make of the judge seeking that kind of clarity? The judge is obviously curious about that, um, but the so there is. The left middle finger is incriminating, isn't it, Tim? That's the first thing, subject to prior um, testing that was to no avail. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right, Shane. But it was, when they did take it to the UK, that sample, that middle finger sample, was combined with the thumbnail sample. That's and then right. They ran, they ran the test on both. And so what the judge was saying was, well, A, there has to be some explanation for that. But he was also pointing out that when it comes to the contamination case, there could be different pathways to it being contaminated because AJM40 could have been contaminated, AJM42 could have been contaminated, or a bit of both could be contaminated. And he's got to weigh all that up when it comes to the end result of how is this sample, is this DNA, DNA hit, which is so important, is it? Is it provable that it wasn't contaminated? Um, so he, sorry, Tim. Oh. Yeah, so so that's I mean, so he's got so many things to weigh up uh, in terms of uh, the possibility of this contamination, uh, which is why why he was trying to get that clear in his head exactly what the prosecution is saying first. The critical issue is because DNA is so incredibly readily transferred secondary or direct and furthermore the sensitivity of the modern testing is such that it could easily be a transfer secondary between containers or examination so that that is of course what um, the defense is hunting any avenue of contamination and as i understand it the defense case is essentially that it may well be the accused man's dna um, that is said to come from the thumbnail or the other finger, but that DNA got there through another course, not during the course of the killing of the deceased. Is that a fair yeah. summary? Yeah, yes. that's, that's exactly right, Shane. Yeah. It's the commission, whether the, the DNA got there in the commission of a murder or whether it got there by some other means, and, and, and that, that, is the, that is the seesaw, and which way that tips, I think, basically will determine which way the judge goes in his verdict. And Tim, Mr Jovic even asked an interesting question today about whether there was a telephone in the lab back then. Well, yeah, so this was, uh, this was Mr Jovic's parting shot to, uh, to Ms Ashley. It was his last, last set of questions. Um, and it, it, it did come out a little bit out of left field that she, he asked 
whether there were phones in the, in the labs and in the open space offices that the scientists used to share. And, and she said, obviously, yes, they were. And then she, and then he, she asked, do you ever remember anyone doing any work on them, any upgrade work, any repair work, um, any uh, cleaning of the phones or anything like that? And she said she got, you know, so, such a long time ago she couldn't remember, which was where the questioning ended. But then, obviously... We, we were asking, well, why is he asked that? And the obvious answer is, well, Mr. Edwards used to be a telecom engineer. He used to do, particularly, he used to do um, corporate-type work. As we know, he, used to, he worked in hospitals and offices and things like that. Um, and so whether that was just a shot across the bows to suggest that at some later stage, Mr. Edwards might fight, be, be said to have worked at the Pathwest laboratory at some stage, we don't know. But it was, uh, it was certainly a question that, um, that came a little bit out of the blue. And um, Well, Tim, uh, if I'm sorry to interrupt you, but more than that, um, this opens up a whole host of possibilities. Firstly, whether or not the accused actually went there, which is probably unlikely, but critically... Had their phones been maintained at any time by people from the same Telstra mm. who would have had daily contact with the accused, the chance of secondary transfer from, mm. say, having sharing a sandwich with him or sharing mm. a steering wheel or a, a screwdriver, yeah, then, well, yeah. to, then to the laboratory, onto a telephone or a telephone fitting, then it's the DNA of the accused is then in the laboratory it can then people go and pick up the phone a door handle that has been entered by a com um, a co-worker secondary 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 the, the, and the absolute critically sensitive testing that is a very excellent um, tactic mm. and it flags one thing either though it's speculative but open or that there may be evidence led that Telstra workers actually went there, that they worked with Edwards. I don't whether or not Edwards will give evidence is a, an interesting question. I, I, no one will know that until the time, but uh, it could be flagged, and he might have might say he was there. But I think this whole secondary secondary proposition is um, a very good point. What we can see is no stone is left unturned in this no. case. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. Um, could Thank I just you. interject there? Since we've got Shane here, um, and he's been um, trampling the, the aisles of the courts longer than I have, <laughs> Shane, can you recall how far back it was that you first recall DNA evidence becoming something that was coming up in trials? I, I honestly can't recall, but certainly I'd say this century um, that it really became material. And... Probably, you know, 205 onwards, something like that. It started appearing particularly because I do a lot of drug cases and DNA is a serious part of the investigative tool of, of the organised crime squad. And so I've confronted DNA in countless trials in the drug context. Mm. Um, but I, in the murder cases... Um, Certainly the one I did last year, which is a very long retrial, um, DNA was a reasonably central part, but not definitive. Do, can you tell us, just extending on from that, <coughs> having been around doing trials in 2005 and 14, 15 years later, is the view on DNA from where your standpoint is 
better or worse on how it affects trials? Well, um, I don't profess to be an expert on DNA. There's a barrister friend of mine who was actually co-counsel on this trial I just did. Um, He's a very well-across DNA. And um, what came out of all this, including our experts, expert and the state expert, was that DNA, if you want to put it in real simple lay terms, isn't the definitive animal it was always thought to be. You can, and and I forgot the name of the expert we called from Sydney. Uh, Tim, who's the expert on this trial, do you know, for the defence? I don't actually, Shane. They haven't, they, uh, as you defence lawyers are want to do, you keep you keep your cards quite close to your chest. So we haven't actually uh, we haven't actually heard his name in uh, in uh, in, in um, dispatches yet. But because uh, the chief, I know, the, the, sorry, I know, I know he's going to. I know he's. Um, I know he's very well regarded, um, and uh, I, I, I'm quite experienced in this uh, in in this field. And he, and uh, he, I think he'd want to be um, given the uh, given the the the, uh, the public interest scrutiny on this trial. Yes, well, Tim, um, uh, the state would know who the defence yes. expert is, the judge would, because all the expert reports would have been exchanged a long time ago. Absolutely. But irrespective of who it is, um, what has come clear in my mind, if I can put it in a lay way, a lay perspective way, is DNA is not the silver bullet it's made out to be. And with absolute scrutiny in terms of transfer, secondary transfer probabilities, um, there is, it is not shut the gate if the DNA is there. There's great scope to dig deep into it, if I can put it metaphorically. Yeah. Shane, you've told us uh, just how much work the defence go to in, in looking at the DNA. We have a question from a listener who asks, how does the defence choose its experts? Do they, figuratively speaking, go door knocking until they find someone who will support them, or do they already have people in mind? Well, in terms of, let's say, my recent experience, um, the fellow that we used from New South Wales actually is an accredited expert. I attended a conference where he gave a paper and he was very impressive. He was, and he's generally the go-to expert. And there's go-to experts everywhere, but um, these people who are, have hold expertise, they don't um, give you what you want. They tell you how it is, because if they gave you what you want, it'd be the last job they'd ever have because they'd be torn to pieces. <laughs> and so, and of course, the experts exchange their reports, both the state and the defence, and there's not many to go to. That's the first point. But these people are professionals, and of course, they can only give you an opinion based on the data, and the data is clear to all. So um, the answer is you don't window shop until you get a yes man. You want someone who is a true man who yeah. will give an objective opinion that will stand cross-examination by the state and indeed judges who often climb into the ring if they feel that someone is gilding the lily. And Rob, just in furtherance of what Shane has said, um, what we will often do is call our colleagues. So if we're looking for a specific expert in a specific field, uh, if we don't know one, we'll just call someone down the end of the corridor and perhaps that lawyer might know or have used one in the past. So there's a, there's a pretty specific pathway to getting them. And we've heard um, during the course of the trial, we've heard 
uh, how the DNA processes have changed so much in the in the just these last few years even. Um, Tim was uh, Anne-Marie Ashley um, cross-examined today about the processes back then in the 1990s compared to today? Yeah, yeah, she was, Matt, um, as, we, as we expected. Um, and the whole gamut of, of the, the, the Pathways Laboratory, the process, the staffing, the, um, the, the storage, um, the labelling, um, the, the logging of, of all, this, all this work was, was dug quite deep into. Um, and it basically started off with a history lesson of, of how Pathwest was in 95, 96, 97 when these these exhibits were first um, coming into their um, coming into their uh, into their orbit. Um, and she said when when she it was it was only a year into her career at Pathwest, and at, at that time there were only a handful, maybe five six um, forensic scientists doing work there. Um, and there was, um, but they were getting lots and lots of cases, up to about 800 cases a year. So she was questioned about um, how much pressure they were under, workload, stresses, that type of thing. And you know, put quite bluntly to her, um, were you put at times were you put under pressure by, um, you know, not uh, not undue pressure or undue influence, but were you being pre- were you did you feel pressure from the police, from the courts, from the DPP? To, um, to get results done um, quickly um, and she was quite candid in saying well yes it was a big workload which is why the staff very quickly increased um, but we did everything we did we, we could to, to make sure that we did everything right um, to for all the rules and regulations we had at that time but as, as Shane's alluded to they were nowhere near the the, the um, the care, I suppose, taken. Um, they only started wearing earnets after the early 2000 masks in late 97, 1998, which you would think would be, you know, an absolute essential now, but they weren't thought of that then. Um, and then there was also questioning about um, specific um, processes done, how things were swabbed, how things were stored, um, how things were labelled, um, and she was she was taken through that. In, in quite some detail, um, but I've got to say she was she was she was quite uh, candid at times in her evidence that yes, there was a lot of work. Yes, of course we make mistakes along the way, but quite pointedly towards the end of the or right at the end of her evidence today, she was asked specifically by um, Mrs. Bar- Mrs. Barbara Gallo whether there was any documentation related to these two specific exhibits that the defence suggests might have somehow cross-contaminated each other and she said no there, there was nothing in either case file to suggest that any contamination event had occurred so and that's that 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 was the that was the denouement of her evidence that's that's that was her part in shot as she as she left the witness stand and was she asked about the actual times of the various testings and whether the caracatta samples and the fingernail samples were ever tested on the same day in the same lab Yes, she was taken through or asked to provide a timeline um, for all the specific uh, events that occurred with both these samples, with the, the fingernail samples and with the samples from the Karakata rape victim. And she, she, she ticked them off one by one, all the different processes that were gone through. Uh, she gave a time, uh, you know, specific days when the, uh, when the processes were done. Um, and it transpired that the closest either of these uh, exhibits ever came 
to each other was about two weeks. There was a two-week gap in May 97 between work on, on one and work on the other. Um, and the, <clears throat> the furthest away was, 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 was years. Um, and she was also specifically asked were they, were they ever um, tested at, you know, at, at simultaneously or at the same time in terms of being run through the, the cycle spinner that they, that they used to, to extract the DNA. She, and she said no, there was no evidence that one batch had ever come into contact you know, in, that, in that context. So, and that that was and that's obviously quite important evidence because the judge is basically going to going to be asked at the end of the trial to look for any any reasonable doubt that these two exhibits could could possibly have come into contact, and from Dr. Uh, uh, Ms. Ashley's um, evidence, um, there was there were quite significant time gaps between the processes. Um, from the two batches of, uh, from the two separate cases. Shane, would that strengthen the prosecution's um, claims that there is absolutely no chance of cross-contamination here? Well, that's why. Um, Tim, was has that witness finished? Was that the re-examination by um, the prosecutor, what you just referred to? Yeah, so that, that was actually that was the last um, portion of her evidence in chief shame, but she was oh, then oh. sort of asked to reiterate it then in re-examination a, a couple of hours later. I see. Yes, well, um, what the state is seeking to do, obviously enough, is to try to put um, put to bed, if I can use that euphemism, any question of cross-contamination, secondary, direct, through equipment, human handling, <coughs> Or otherwise, and so of course, that was part, was it not, Tim? The state's attempt to seek to put out any bushfire the defence might have lit in cross-examination. Yeah, I mean they they they, they were quite um, obviously trying to put as much distance in time and physical distance between these two batches of exhibits that they possibly could, um, uh, because. I mean, it, it is a, the same physical space that, that, that these two batches of evidence were sharing, but different um, boxes, different freezers, different storage containers, um, and obviously then inside bags and inside pots themselves. But that, that, that distance in time was where the prosecution want, obviously wanted to finish um, uh, Ms. Ashley's evidence in chief to try and, to try and stamp, you know, stamp their mark and, and place a flag on that hill to say, you know, we say, look, there, there, was, there was this distance that it was both physical and, uh, and in time um, between, the two, the, between the two things. It wasn't just a case of um, one test being run on one day and that was it. They, they did various testing over a number of years on the different exhibits. Um, uh, and the, obviously the Karakata exhibits first came into the lab in, in 95, the Kira exhibits first came into the lab in 97, but then along the line there was separate, um, separate processes done on all of them. Um, and she went through the different, the, the same type of testing done on the different exhibits, if you like. So there was a, a what we, they call the C double T uh, triplex, there was another one called DS180, I think, um, and she, she tick-boxed all, all those separate processes done on both, 
and the, as I say, the closest that they came in time to actually being out on a bench or being extracted was was two weeks. But the furthest apart that where any of these processes were was were, were it could be counted in years. So once again, the the distance in time was the, was the key thing that the prosecution were trying to put um, into the judge's mind. Tim, I, I imagine the defence strategy will include the lack of the protocols that now exist in relation to DNA handling and sampling because of now of the incredibly sophisticated sampling and identification. Back then, when these samples were collected and initially analysed, the protocols mm. were for obvious reasons, very unsophisticated compared to today. Have the defence sought to amplify that issue? Yeah, well, in, on both on both um, fronts, actually, Shane, they've, they've, they've pointed out the, the actual difference in the tests themselves, the fact yes. that they were only looking at certain numbers of, of loci, whereas now they look at 21. The, the very first time they were run, I think they were only looking at three or four. Um, but then they also, for instance, Mr. Jovich today asked about gloves and, and, and whether uh, um, where, where if you touched a physical exhibit, whether you would change your gloves, for example. Um, well, in the old days, Tim, they would often handle the same exhibit with the same glove. Now, um, you can drive a bus into the DNA if the gloves aren't changed every single Maneuver like yeah. the poor old police officer might go through a hundred pairs of gloves in one invest in just one examination. Yeah, and that's and that's exactly what Miss Ashley was asked about whether you when you touched physical exhibits, for example, were you were you expected to change gloves? And she said yes, but when asked, well, but when you were running certain tests in the DNA lab, and then you were only touching pots or tubes or um, pipettes or that or the type that type of thing she, she she was again asked would you be expected to change gloves then and this is back in 95 96 97 and she said no but now she said once you've run one test you'll probably change your gloves and and then to, to absolutely make sure so there's there's obviously been advancements in in in, in knowledge about trace dna and and and, and secondary contamination all, all and all those things and that has warranted the um the upskilling i suppose of of, of what people are expected to do now tim uh, we mentioned earlier at the start of the podcast that you had an unexpected spectator in the public gallery this morning who was that yes yeah, so it was flagged um, just before court with us that um the, the Western, Western Australia's Police Commissioner Chris Dawson would be paying a visit um, to court today. Um, obviously, all the journalists' ears pricked up at that because you only usually get the, the, the big brass in court when something big's about to happen. But uh, we were then told that he was it was a um, a courtesy visit on, on a couple of counts. One to just check in on all the WA police detectives that have been um, sitting in court and assisting the DPP throughout the the, the trial, which is now into its ninth week. Um, which, uh, uh, as it was said to us, is what good leaders do. They come and check on their troops now and again. Um, and then when once um, uh, uh, Mr. Dawson, Commissioner Dawson, was in court, he also spent a little bit of time with Dennis Glennon, um, Kira's um, Kira's dad, who is back in court um, after taking a little break while all that post mortem evidence was being given. Um, which was which was nice to see that that you know WA's 
top cop, if you like, um, uh, took some time out of his busy schedule just to just to check on how Mr. Glennon was going throughout the process. Um, he didn't stay long. He wasn't in uniform, but he but he but he was there. Um, and it was quite ironic that um, that it should be today because it, it was actually uh, Commissioner Dawson that um, started this whole process of the fingernails off back in 2008. He was a deputy commissioner then, and it was him that tasked his detectives at that time to um, to look overseas for possible investigative avenues, which was how the uh, fingernails ended up in the UK in the first place. So, um, yeah, a little bit of full circle, and I, I'm sure Commissioner Dawson will be paying very close attention for the rest of the trial, and, and certainly, uh, certainly on that day uh, um, in uh, many months' time when the verdict comes down. You can only imagine just how closely he would be following it, um, given his previous experience. Yeah, well, he's a very, very busy man, as you can imagine. Western Australia is a vast state with over nearly 7,000 police officers under his, uh, under his watch. But, um, but the fact that he has had, um, or WA Police have had specific liaison officers here that I know have been reporting back to HQ with the progress and, and updating the senior brass of what's been going on, of what's been going on, because obviously they can't be here in person every day. Um, I'm, as we've said so many times, this is a hugely important case for everyone involved. No, not least the uh, the police that have been investigating it for uh, for nearly for nearly twenty five years. Yeah, can you tell us uh, what will be happening in court tomorrow? Um, so we've got more um, Pat West evidence to come tomorrow. It'll be a, a fresh um, a fresh uh, witness because uh, Miss Ashley actually finished her evidence quite late today or very late today. Um, so we understand it's a chap called Martin Blooms who was all, uh, who was one of the started as a lab technician and then became a, a, a forensic scientist at Pat West over that um, journey. Very experienced, very long-standing uh, staff member at Pat West, and so um, he'll be put through his paces tomorrow as to um, uh, as to uh, his his role. In, in, in testing these bits of evidence over the years. Yeah. Well, thank you all for your time today. Much appreciated and very enlightening. Thanks for coming along and joining us today, Shane, and thank you for your thank company. You. you can contact us at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au. We look forward to joining you again tomorrow with Alison and Tim for day 38 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog. Watch the nightly news updates and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.